Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all the subjects you're talking about in football. I'm Ian McGarry, and of course, the guru Duncan Castle joins me as always. Uh, we've got news for you um, on lots of different deals that are going on, as well as a little look back at Euro 2020 that took place in 2021. Duncan, you broke the story on this podcast two years ago that Hector Bellerin, uh, the Arsenal right back, uh, would be sold and Arsenal were looking for a replacement for him. Is there information that Bellerin uh, and his representatives are in talks with at least three different clubs with regards to a transfer this summer? We've also been told uh, by very um, senior sources at uh, Arsenal that Bellerin uh, is one of the players that they believe they can actually cash in on in terms of their financial difficulties and also their ability to purchase new players. Um, this obviously isn't a surprise to you, Duncan, because you knew about this a, a, a long time ago. Um, what do you think his most likely destination is because he's been linked to PSG, to Barcelona? Is it going to be that or do you think he'll be somewhere else? I think we should go back at what happened with Bayerin. Was they had him on a long-term contract. They felt he was a player that they might struggle to retain um, and had a big value at the time. He then had a serious knee injury which prevented him from selling him the summer where they first had that plan in place and they were looking looking for a, a replacement um, or someone to to have in the squad for one more year uh, working as a deputy alongside Bayerin, um, with the idea that they'd sell him after that. Um, I think now you they are in a, they're in a different situation. They're in a, a a different rebuild. That was a rebuild period for them, but now you have Edu in charge of uh, sports direction at the club and Mikel Arteta as the manager and having a lot of say in um, what transfers. And, and how the squad should be reshaped. And they want to do quite radical work on the squad. Um, we've, you know, we've told you about the players that they're looking at, at central midfield options. We've told you that they have been pushing very hard to get Ben White in from Brighton, and that's a very much an Arteta-driven move. Um, he sees White as central to the kind of football team he wants to build a, a ball-playing centre-back with pace, someone who can play in a high line comfortably and someone, because he's English and young and because of his attitude uh, and the way he carries himself, has captaincy potential at the club. Um, 
But the other side of it is making space in the squad. It's an imbalanced squad. It has been for a long time. Um, there are personality issues. Um, probably the thing that Arteta has found hardest in this period as a uh, the, the main manager for the first time in his career is dealing with individuals uh, and getting individuals to buy into his plan and operate uh, for the benefit of the team uh, and at all times. And one of the solutions to that is get the players, some of the players on high wages who have proved difficult out of the squad and replace them with younger players who are selected by Arteta to fit his plan. Um, Bayerin, I think it's more a case of there is value there. There is value, but they only have two years left of contract and they have the indication from Bayerin that he does not want to stay himself. So um, doing the, you know, the standard economic calculation, you need to shift this summer if you can. Problem, it's a COVID summer. Um, Spain is the obvious destination for a, a Spanish player, but there's very, very little money in the Spanish market. Basically got a situation where Atletico, Barcelona, Real Madrid are looking to do one significant transfer at, at, at a minimum to give something to their fans, but trying to shift lots of players out or reduce their wages, even even trying to reduce the wages of players that they've all they've just signed under freedom of contract, such as Memphis Depay, to make room for um, Lionel Messi's wage on on their books. Um, so limited options, I think, and also a, a threat and a danger that um, Bayern might not might choose to stay on longer and wait and see what happens in a year's time when he will have more leverage and more control over the process in the same kind of way that Rafael Varane has done at Real Madrid um, and and placed himself in a position where he is canvassing offers, he's using interest from clubs like Manchester United um, to try and get the salary of 10 million net that he's asked for at Real Madrid uh, and uh, see what offers are available and decide what the best position is for him. But, you know, there's don't make any mistake about it. It's a very difficult market for Arsenal to operate in and they're, they're trying trying to put a lot of money into certain deals such as centre-back, um, defensive midfielder and trying to find areas of the team to fund that and you know, another player wh- who they would like to sell and get the wages away but they're finding very difficult to sell is Alexander Lacazette. Indeed, I have been told that Lacazette has been marketed very aggressively around Europe but without any particular interest uh, that is strong enough to suggest that Arsenal will be able to offload Lacazette. Um, obviously, his age uh, is against him in terms of uh, there being no resale value and also the price that Arsenal would want. And also, of course, which seems to be the perennial problem with Arsenal, the contract that they gave him on an upgrade Um prevents uh, him from wanting to leave because he knows he's not going to get the same amount of money elsewhere. You mentioned Ben White, uh, Duncan. Uh, We have spoken in detail uh, in pods uh, in the last few weeks about Arsenal's interest and the fact that they are the leading club chasing the Brighton Home and Albion centre-back, who, of course... Um, was part of England's Euro 2020 squad. 
uh, we also mentioned that Chelsea um, have entered into that particular round of negotiations um, but are waiting to find out what Brighton's asking price is. However, an interesting development has been that Brighton uh, have so far not entered into any kind of serious discussions uh, regarding White's future. Uh, they have named a price, uh, and that is a basic £50 million pounds, uh, fee plus potential add-ons and potentially a sell-on fee as well. This has led, and of course, normal practice, as we both know, um, that you have a second, third, fourth choice. And uh, Jules Kunde of Sevilla uh, is now in the mix with regards to both clubs, both London clubs, and someone who clearly is a prospect uh, and also who is flexible as well, Duncan. It's not just centre-back, he can play at right back as well, or even all across the back four if need be. Um, I just wonder, will this become either a bargaining chip against Brighton uh, in terms of the sale of White, or will it indeed end up being the case that uh, Kunde could well become a player for one of those clubs, making White the only option for the other? It's a kind of strange seesaw type development. It's no surprise that Arsenal and Chelsea are looking at Kunde and, and trying to find out whether they can do that deal. As we reported, um, I think a couple of weeks ago now, Manchester United have made an offer to um, Sevilla for Kunde, an informal offer of 45 million euros, which was rejected. Um, the, I think the problem these clubs have is that Kunde's personal preference is to move to Real Madrid and that is related to Varane's situation. Um, my understanding is Florentino Perez will not buy another centre-back if Varane stays this summer. Therefore, Kunde is kind of waiting to see does any club get to the, the money that Sevilla are looking for because Sevilla need a high fee um, off the transaction because they owe a lot um, to Kunde's previous club Bordeaux as part of the deal, uh, to make it financially valuable to them. Kunde has said that he's interested in, in leaving and, uh, and Sevilla are pragmatic about it. If their money that they expect to get from the deal is right, they will sell him. I think a similar situation to Brighton. Um, but for Arsenal to use him as a backup option to White, I think is difficult because he knows there is interest from Chelsea, from Manchester United who've made an offer and from Real Madrid, as I say, where, where he would prefer to move to. Um, so complicated for them. Arsenal, I think, like they've got very close to the money that Brighton have said uh, they wanted for the, the player as a, as a minimum. So they've, they've already offered 48 million guaranteed and 6 million in performance related variables. Um, two-thirds of which should be achieved without difficulty. The the element that's based on national team performance is obviously a little bit more questionable. But um, as you've reported, Chelsea are waiting to see what happens with that. And Chelsea are playing a game where they want to be informed once Brighton have said, OK, you've got to the figure we like. 
um, and then Chelsea will decide whether they come in and match that figure, better it, match it and say to White, well, you're better off coming to us because we can give you Champions League football immediately and you don't have to wait and see what happens with Arsenal. Um, it's, it's a kind of standard transfer market situation. You have, you have three, four, five individuals um, in a position, um, clubs wanting to recruit in that position. Arsenal have gone first with White. Um, my understanding is that White would be more than happy to join them if that if Brighton agree a fee and uh, and nobody else comes in. And I think it's going to be interesting to see what pressure White puts on Brighton, if any, um, to try and uh, accelerate this move because now the Euros are over. Now these players have been involved in the Euros; they go on holidays, and uh, I think in an ideal world, if when they they expect to be transferred this summer and Ben White's definitely in a position where he expects to be transferred given uh, the kind of money that's being offered to Brighton for him and the, and the calibre of club who are interested in him they'd rather do it in a straightforward fashion and, and come back from their holidays and go straight to their new club Very true um, my understanding is that uh, while other international players who've been um, with England uh, during the Euros have been given three weeks off, uh, including Ben White. Uh, he's actually only going to take 12 days, Duncan, uh, because he is prioritising um, what happens next in his career rather than uh, a vacation and uh, the ability to rest up and recuperate. Obviously, didn't play any minutes in the Euros, so he is still fresh but has been training um, and so we'll take a shortened holiday uh, rather than uh, an elongated one in order uh, in his own mind that uh, he'll be able to finalise or indeed obviously uh, be involved in uh, the transfer negotiations which would of, of course include the medical um, and other uh, things regarding his personal terms uh, and he'd rather be present and absent uh, for that. So it's an interesting situation, I think, with White and Arsenal stroke Chelsea, as well as Jules Kunde as well. Another England player who is um, going to be involved in a contract negotiation is, we understand, Mason Mount, uh, where the club uh, would like to upgrade uh, his current contract after what has been, um, you have to say, a very a developmental but also successful season uh, for the player, uh, which has obviously concluded in him playing in the Euro 2020 final for England. Uh, this is a player who obviously uh, was promoted by Frank Lampard before uh, he was sacked and then um, also... Uh, put faith in by Thomas Tuchel, Big Tam, as we know. And uh, that that contract upgrade uh, could mean anything up to £50,000 a week pay rise on his current salary, which is around £80,000 per week. Um, reflecting Duncan, I think, uh, and fairly obviously, uh, just what an important player he has become for the Stamford Bridge Club regarding... Uh, their uh, success in terms of the Champions League and their challenge for the title next season. Yeah, 
I think I think Mason Mount's established himself very clearly in these these two seasons at Chelsea as one of the top, certainly uh, homegrown players in uh, in the Premier League. Uh, and he, and it's interesting he's done it under two managers. Um, he was someone that Frank Lampard promoted, but he, you can go and look at his st- his statistics. And in that Lampard full season, he started. Um, 33 Premier League games and in the season which was half Frank Lampard and half Thomas Tuchel he again started 33 Premier League games so he managed to grab the faith of the new coach um, who had a lot of options available to him particularly in those um, attacking midfield areas that, that's where Marina Granovskaya had, had, had stocked the, the squad sky high with, with talent but he became uh, pivotal to Tuchel quickly and uh, and very important obviously in, in winning the Champions League and an important role in, in England's uh, European Championship squad despite coming down with COVID during the tournament. Um, this is it's no surprise really that, um, that Chelsea want to uh, reward him for his performances and, and extend his contract out. They gave him a new deal uh, when he returned from loan to uh, to play for Lampard in July 2019, that contract runs till 2024. But obviously, his his status has massively improved since then. Um, so, secure a player um, who has demonstrated he can be central to your team and should be central uh, building forward. And and obviously, Chelsea have that advantage again of Roman Abramovich being. Um, very interested in the success of the team and being prepared to put big money down to uh, to regain the Premier League title and the evidence of that is in their pursuit of Erling Haaland um, something you reported on early um, you told us that they had agreed in principle the personal terms uh, to get Haaland which are incredibly substantial for a player of his age and um, it's now a case of uh, whether they can get to the number that Dortmund will accept to sell this summer um, rather than wait and lose them uh, for a, a lowered release clause in a year's time. And I think you've seen in the last uh, few days that other media sources have, uh, have latched on to um, the idea that, uh, that you reported early that um, Chelsea are very serious about this and, and working to get the player in the summer and beat the competition again on a, on a young talent um, by putting money down in a COVID environment as they did uh, to take Timo Werner effectively away from Jurgen Klopp at Liverpool and, and to take Kai Havertz away from a number of clubs who'd been pursuing them and get him in last summer. Certainly the case um, and we expect there to be um, further developments on Erling Haaland over the next two weeks or so which of course will bring you the news first here on the Transfondo podcast. Interesting little aside here, Duncan, and but one that gives us a nice segue is the bromance between um, Mason Mount and Declan Rice, who started their careers in the Chelsea Academy. Declan Rice, of course, left at age 16 uh, to go to West Ham and has since made uh, his career in the Premier League at uh, the Olympic Stadium. Uh, but now they've been playing together for England for some time and obviously during 
this last European Championship campaign, uh, race was a subject of um, very, very intense interest from Chelsea when Lampard was in charge of the team. Um, that interest obviously subsided once uh, he left the job and Tuchel now appears to be satisfied with N'Golo Kante and Jorginho as his double pivot. But it is our information here at the Transfer Window podcast that Manchester United have expressed their interest in Rice uh, before his very successful and impressive campaign with England over the course of the summer and the Euros. Um, I think, Duncan, the problem, oh, I'll say the problem, the, um, the difficulty will be, I think, for Manchester United is, is twofold. One uh, is that they have some very highly paid players who currently play in that position in defensive midfield. And secondly, uh, West Ham will no doubt uh, value Rice at around 70 to 80 million euros, uh, which is a very substantial fee um, in United's budget when they are trying to uh, buy a striker uh, they've already agreed, obviously, the £73 million transfer of Jadon Sancho as well. Is it reasonable to think that they could pull this off? Or is this one where uh, it will be left uh, hanging a little bit in terms of uh, would West Ham effectively reduce their asking price or indeed just wait for a year and then sell him next summer? Because he's not exactly... He's not old, let's put it that way. I, th- I think he's obvious individual to have on recruitment list for Manchester United when they want to improve in, in central midfield, um, just as it, it's obvious for them to have players like Jules Koundé and, um, and Rafael Varane on, on the recruitment list for, uh, for central defence, as it was obvious for them to have Haaland on that list for centre-forward before they decided to step away because it cost it was going to cost too much money this summer to do the deal. And, and you know, that's where Chelsea have, have been clever and, and said, we're not going to wait and try and win this on salary when multiple clubs try next summer for Haaland with a, a reduced um, release clause at Dortmund. Um, let's just try and get the deal done now and, and outbid everyone else over it if we can. Um, I find it difficult to see that United will go to those kind of financial levels for Declan Rice when they need to make room in midfield. And obviously the question there is what happens with Paul Pogba. Um, That's something that's to a certain extent out of their control. As we've detailed um, to a great extent on this podcast is that Pogba wants preference to go to Real Madrid. There's a, a very limited number of clubs that he'd be prepared to go to. Max Allegri would be interested in bringing him back to Juventus. Um, there's talk about Paris Saint-Germain. That there, there are a few options for him, but one of the options that is clear to him is run down my contract for a year uh, and leave for nothing uh, and see which of those clubs I can get to in a year's time. So United, I don't think, really are in control of the Pogba situation. 
if they were to be able to sell him this summer or to wrap him into a, a deal for another player, then maybe there's more room for something like Declan Rice to happen. But I would expect that midfield position as things stand to be filled by someone who would cost less money. Although Rice is a good fit and Manchester United like to hire young players, they like English players, like players with um, with significant social media appeal. Um, Rice ticks all those boxes. Um, another player that, that's been talked about a lot in the last couple of weeks is Eduardo Camavinga, um, the 18-year-old midfielder. Interesting background to that is that uh, Camavinga is represented by one of UK's biggest football agencies, Stellar. And my understanding is that Stellar paid a very substantial sum to get his representation rights and to be allowed to um, to oversee his move from a uh, mid-tier French club to one of the, the European giants. The, the figure that was mentioned to me was over £3 million paid for the player. Now, it, it's not unusual to pay for agencies to pay to represent players in, in the current football world but that amount of money to be paid for a young player is a very substantial investment and obviously in the expectation that they would be able to land a significant transfer fee this summer and take a significant percentage of the transfer fee as a commission that has been complicated because Camavinga hasn't played very well this season he says himself he hasn't had the best of seasons um you can look at recent interviews, uh, an interview that Jonathan Barnett, the, the head agent at Stellar, gave um, to, uh, on a different subject, but ended up talking about Camavinga. And it's almost almost like a sales campaign. As with Barnett said, he's probably the best young player in the world. He has just turned 18. He's already been a French international. He's an unbelievable talent. Could play in any team in the world. Um, and then also says, believe me, we have a lot of offers for this year, a lot of offers and good ones. I mean, top, top clubs. We don't want to rush. There is the right time to move on and playing games is the most important thing at his age. Um, it is, I understand, getting to a difficult time for them because they don't have the, the deal that they had hoped to have in place or the offers they'd hoped to have in place by this stage of the summer. And they are... Um, obviously very keen to do the deal this summer while a transfer fee would be involved rather than let him run his contract down and become a effective free agent uh, in a year's time. Um, is he the best young player in the world? I, I don't think there's any question that he is not the best young player in the world at present. In fact, talking to people I, I trust on uh, on assessing the quality of players and, and what they think of Camavinga, they say yes, um, definitely a serious talent but there are better young midfielders even in France at present who if I had to recruit in that position I would pick rather than Camavinga. I remember Duncan um, just an anecdotal um, reference to what you were saying about it's not unusual for um, an agency to pay a player or more often or not his family um, a, a huge fee um, uh, for him to sign up with a representation contract when uh, Jermaine Defoe was interviewing agents 
well, sorry, Jermaine Defoe's mother was interviewing agents um, for uh, the pro- the proposition of him leaving West Ham United. And um, one of the agents who was interviewed uh, told me that uh, he was presented with a um, a plan, a land plan for a house in the Caribbean. And <laughs> the deal was you buy the plot and build the house, which was going to cost, I'm not sure how much it was. Um, uh, but anyway, that was like the first thing that he was told. And he immediately got up and walked out. <laughs> because he didn't want to do business that way. Um, so there you go. That's an example of the three million pounds uh, or so that perhaps Camavinga's family have been paid by Stellar uh, to represent him. Speaking of Stellar um, and not performances, uh, England and Italy, Duncan, um We've had a conversation about this already uh, with regards to uh, how uh, England managed to uh, turn what was a very much winnable situation into a losing uh, conclusion uh, in the Euro 2020 final on Sunday evening. Uh, I don't know about you, but for me, I think if, if Gareth Southgate has an opportunity i.e. there were three jobs in the Premier League available. Crystal Palace, and obviously that's his hometown club, uh, club he played for. Uh, Wolves and Tottenham Hotspur were all available. If they were still available or one of them was still available, maybe he would have decided to uh, leave the England job and go to the Premier League. Uh, and in fact, in his post-mortem press conference, he did actually say, I'm not going to guarantee I'm going to be England manager after the World Cup in 18 months' time. Uh, What do you, I mean, I I think that he blew it. And I'm surprised about some of the media coverage saying, oh, you know, this is a massive step forward for England. And, you know, this was the pride of lions, et cetera, et cetera, with a lot of the headlines and that England were brilliant and they're showing real progress, et cetera, et cetera. But that was a final that was there to be won. It really was. Well, but Southgate from the FA's side, they are already talking about extending his contract and, and you're right, Southgate kind of talked aside or talked around that suggestion uh, yesterday uh, and said, well, he wants to take the team to Qatar. He doesn't know how much further he he can go, and at the moment, he needs a holiday and he needs a break. Um, have England made progress? Absolutely, they've made progress. Um, he's got them to a semi final of a World Cup, and he's got them to final of the European Championship on home turf. Um, they are very significant achievements with England, given what had gone beforehand. Let's look at what they did in the tournament in the round, and and then I I think the idea that it was a brilliant performance, and that and there was an idea going around that England were the outstanding team in the tournament. I don't think that is sustainable, um, spe- especially after the final. I think anyone who argues that the best football team 
didn't win that tournament. It's just they weren't watching the same tournament. Italy were the best football team. Um, football went back to Rome as uh, as Leonardo Bonucci um, shouted into the camera after um, they'd achieved uh, that victory, um, and and they were the team playing football. And I think that is the problem that England have at present. Um, they have, in my opinion, a much better quality of players than they've had for a long time. The, the, the developmental paths that they put in place um, with youth level footballers have paid dividends. The amount of money there is in the Premier League and the direction of a percentage of that money towards um, producing technically better footballers and the fact that they're being coached by the best coaches in the world um, and, and surrounded by some of, not the best, but some of the best players in the world has benefited England. Did Southgate get the best out of those resources? I don't think he did. And I, I think he didn't get it because he took, deliberately took a route of defensive first football. He had done analysis showing that the teams that tended to win tournaments were ones that don't concede many goals. So he started off by trying to make the team as defensively sound as possible, which I think he did. He achieved that. But he achieved that by kind of ignoring a coherent way of controlling the ball and creating chances. The midfield wasn't great. The goal scoring was pretty much dependent on we've got some very talented individuals up front. Let's get the ball to them and see if they can get it into the net. Um, you look at the bench they had, and, and, and I think this, is, this gets to your point of an opportunity missed. They played every game but one at home, which was one more than it was supposed to be when the tournament was originally set up because COVID changed that um, organisation. They had an advantage of having a 26-man squad because of COVID. They had an advantage of having six substitutes because of COVID. That benefits the teams with deeper squads, and England had a very deep squad. But you look at players like Bakayo Saka, Jack Grealish, Phil Foden, Jaden Sancho, Marcus Rashford. Between them, in the entire tournament, they played 807 minutes of football between them. Whereas Declan Rice, who performed well, has 540 minutes in central midfield. Um, they weren't being used except off the bench in, in the main, in moments when uh, Southgate needed them to come into the team. Apart from the Ukraine game, I don't think they dominated any opponent. Um, they managed to beat Germany, which was hailed as a huge success and even had Southgate talking about um, how England didn't like being invaded and, and that the World War II had had an effect and the, the, uh, the, the atmosphere in the stadium, which had helped them win games, which I think was a, you know, the one media faux pas that Southgate made during the tournament. They were the only team who failed to beat Scotland and not only failed to beat Scotland, almost lost to Scotland. If they'd lost that game, it wouldn't have been a surprise because they were abject in terms of having a, a, a way of breaking their opponents down. Um, the Germany game could have easily have gone the other way, uh, given the, the miss uh, that uh, Muller made, but also the way I think Germany had the better of that game um, over the 90 minutes. 
They played Denmark, who from a, a, in terms of talent, they should be easily overcoming, but required a, a you know one of a, a refereeing decision that even I think the majority of English commentators were saying wasn't a penalty to get them through. And, and I think that game was also very indicative of, of the shortcomings of, of Southgate in that Denmark played the more coherent game there. They made the more of their ability. Um, they had moments where they, they, they looked like they, they could win the match. And um, Southgate, at the, at the point in the game where he managed to get ahead and he, and he clearly had an advantage over a tiring Denmark team, he puts an extra defender on takes Jack Grealish off, who, who had helped them uh, get ahead in the game, puts Trippier on as an extra defender, and England don't seem to notice that Denmark are only with 10 men for that second half, and, uh, and, and start punting the ball down the pitch as soon as it comes to them for the, for the first five, six minutes of that half, basically ceding possession to, to the Danes and letting them have a chance of, of equalising again. And I think that's pretty typical of the way they played. The final, um, their praise for the first half, they actually only had one shot on target in the first half, in the first two minutes. That was their only shot of the first half. Uh, they start time-wasting uh, throw-ins with Luke Shaw in the, uh, after about three, four minutes of the game. Um, they only have two shots on target in the whole game. They're, they're, the inability to take advantage of the talent they have in the team and something that's been long-standing in Southgate which seems to be an inability to read games and an inability to change things once what are very carefully thought out plans he's a guy who works really hard he does incredible amounts of homework preparation can't criticize him but actually being able to read a game and change it and uh, and add that 10, 15% that top managers do inside a match, what Mancini did to change the way Italy were operating and respond to what England were doing in the first 15 minutes of the final, I just don't see it from them. Therefore, I think England have a quandary. Do you stick with a guy who has you know, done more than would have been expected from him when he took the job? Or do you say, actually we should thank this man for the work he's done. But if we want to go one step further, we're going to have to get a better coach for these individual games. And In my opinion, Duncan, uh, I agree with you with regards to the way in which uh, Southgate is uh, tactically either naive or not quite good enough with regards to in-game um, changes and his ability to respond positively uh, in a match where he has the ability to set up his team to win. Um, I think that Sunday night was a very good example of how um, he fails to see the opportunity to win a game and instead opts, uh, as you've said, to be negative and conservative and try and see a game out you would think that he had learned from the semi-final against Croatia in 2018 World Cup uh, when they went 1-0 up and with Kieran Trippier's goal that seeing out a game for England is, first of all, uh, not natural 
uh, for them because they have rarely done it. Um, but secondly, uh, if you're going to win a trophy uh, and you're going to or progress to a final, then you need to um, be aggressive and take advantage of your lead, which they obviously didn't do against Italy because um, that Italy team were very rattled in those first 20 minutes. And instead, England sat back and gave Italy the chance to settle into the match. Um, and Italy then took the uh, advantage of being able to play and hold the ball and use it and create chances, etc. No coincidence, uh, I think, that uh, when they played in the semi-final in 2018 in Russia, Croatia scored in 67 minutes, and on Sunday night, Italy scored in 68. It just tells you that the clock ticks and the opposition will come back at you and they will bite you. And yeah, I, I, as I said, I, I think you're right in saying, you know, he does a lot of preparation. He works very hard. There's no doubt that, you know, he is a very committed person and everything else, but I just don't think he has the inspirational or charismatic qualities to carry England over the line. And that's where things fall down. So uh, it's something the FA are going to have to look at. Uh, but I doubt they will before the Qatar World Cup uh, in 2022. So uh, it will be an interesting journey because everyone um, outside of this podcast <laughs> are saying that it's coming home in 2022. Mm. Not quite so sure. It's that, look, it, I talk about his inability to read the game. If you watch his press conference the day after the match, he's asked in, in a little bit of detail about what went wrong. And his response is, I haven't had a chance to watch the game back properly, so I can't answer that question yet. I think that's the giveaway. You, you, you take Roberto Mancini um, or you take Pep Guardiola and ask them the same question and they might avoid answering it for uh, for their own purposes, but they'll have an answer and they'll have an analysis in place because they'll have seen it during the game. Southgate doesn't see that, unfortunately. The part of the process thing, <laughs> look at where Italy were. Um, Italy didn't even qualify for the 2018 World Cup. Three years later, they are 34 games unbeaten and they're European champions again. So why does the process take longer with more talent uh, in England? Um, but, and I think there is more talent. But what Italy had, and, and I know that Italy going into the game felt this, was the belief and the understanding that they were a better team. They'd seen the way the tournament had gone. They'd watched what England were. They weren't worried about the crowd. Uh, I mean, this is a whole other story. The I mean, the disgraceful behaviour of a number, a large number of England supporters, and the failure to police and, and steward uh, the tournament properly. Um, big, big question marks over England's desire to host the World Cup uh, off the back of that. But the Italians went in saying, "We are a stronger team. We are capable of de defeating these guys if we remain calm, and we." Uh, play our football 
it was perfectly set up. It couldn't have been better set up for Southgate to get a goal was your first attack. You have that period where Italy are rattled before they get reorganised. You're set up to be a defensive side. That's how he played the whole tournament. You've got lots of quick counter-attacking talent, yet you still fail to take advantage of it. It's been portrayed as a great success. I think going forward, there might be a retrospective of this was a really good chance because the World Cup's not going to be as easy to win as uh, as this Euros was. Certainly not. Um, that's definitely the case. This is the first Transfer Window podcast of the week. As such, we will end with our hero and villain segment. Uh, Duncan, I'm going to turn it over to you to give us your hero before I nominate villain of this week. Uh, hero for me was, for me, the player of the tournament at the Euros. Um, I've always liked defenders and who cannot like a defender of the technical ability of Chiellini, Giorgio Chiellini. The way his ability to stop opponents of all different types, watch back that final and watch some of the one-on-ones he had against English forwards where it looks uh, for all the world that the forward has a massive advantage and is going to get a shot and goal. Um, one-on-ones in the penalty area and somehow Chiellini comes out of them with the ball um, on top of that a, a wonderful character um, someone I had a, the pleasure of, of speaking to for the first time the 2010 World Cup after a, a very mediocre performance by Italy and he was open to talking and uh, a sense of humour um, and I think one of the great players in European football and, and such a shame um, that for some reason UEFA decided not even to include him in their team of the tournament. Well, I can't believe you didn't choose Harry Maguire for that reason. <laughs> Maybe it's because he's he's not Harry Maguire role. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was going to nominate the UEFA technical committee for not including Chiellini in their uh, team of the tournament uh, as the villains, but instead I've decided to go uh, with England fans who um, disgraced basically uh, their own country uh, by first of all storming their own national stadium and uh, breaking in and taking away seats and trying to grab tickets from people who had paid to get there uh, and generally causing uh, an amount of chaos which you know did not deserve uh, the occasion. That's for sure. How lucky we were, Ian, that that stadium wasn't full, being a sold out. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And then, um, and then afterwards, racially abusing their own players. Um, it doesn't get much worse than that, um, except if you're pretty Patel, because obviously, <laughs> yeah, you you, you criticise players for taking the knee, and then claim that it's disgusting that they racially abuse their players. So, uh, pretty Patel, England fans. Uh, yes, you are the Transfer Window Podcast's Villains of the Week. Uh, we will be back with you, of course, later uh, in this particular calendar week. Uh, until then, you can get in touch with us on at Transfer Podcast on all the normal social media channels, and you can listen on YouTube as well. Uh, Duncan is on at Duncan Castles. I on Twitter. I am on at GarboSJ. As always, and we would be very glad to engage with you as ever. Until then, 
uh, on Friday of this week. Uh, we say stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.